Hey folks, my name is Andy Sido, and you're listening to Middle Class Rockstar. My guest today is singer, songwriter, fingerstyle guitarist, and harmonica player, Ray Bonneville. Welcome to episode 87. I'm getting excited as uh, I'm nearing that landmark 100. And then I, maybe I'll keep going after 100 episodes. I know I said I was going to get to 100, but maybe I'll keep going. I'll definitely keep going as long as, uh, as, long as the earth allows. Um, I don't think I have a whole lot to say today. I don't have a, a, a ton of tour dates coming up in the next couple months. I'm doing my three-night-a-week residency at Eddie V's Prime Seafood in Denver every Monday, Thursday, Friday for the next couple months, and that's a piano trio. I'm on piano vocals, and I've got a bassist and drummer with me. It's a, a different crew every night, and uh, it's, a, it's a whole lot of fun. On uh, Saturday, February 19th, I'll be at the 4th and Main Listening Room in Ray, Colorado, and Sunday, February 20th, I'll be at the Leadership Center in Aurora, Nebraska. Um... You know, and then other other things after that, I guess, right? I'm getting married in June, and uh, my fiancé and I are going to do a, a sort of road trip after the wedding, a road trip slash tour, mostly a road trip, but, you know, a, a partial, I don't know if we'll even call it our honeymoon, but, you know, a road trip honeymoon tour. I sound like a terrible husband already as I say that out loud. Anyway... <laughs> Wish me luck. It's going to be a fun summer. Um, my guest today is Ray Bonneville. I'm very excited to have him on the show. Uh, we had a great connection, great conversation. And I've been a fan of his for a long time. I first, I, I believe I first saw him at E-Town in Boulder, um, which if you've been a listener of this show, you know I'm a big fan of E-Town. And uh, I was raised, uh, musically raised, going to those shows um, most weeks as a kid. And I think Ray was there maybe when I was in high school or something. I don't remember exactly. But we loved the show. And I've kept track of his music ever since. Also, he is one of the biggest, if not biggest, influences on my dear friend Nick Clark, who's been on the, episode, who's been on the show several times, both as a guest and uh, a co-host. He co-hosted with Mickey Raphael um, and also with David Dondero. Those are great episodes also. Go check those out. So anyway, it's great to have um, Ray on. And before I start reading eps, excerpts, excuse me, before I start reading excerpts from his bio, um, you know, I think it's important to note that as far as singer-songwriters who play rack harmonica goes, I don't know if it gets, um, I don't know if it gets any better than Ray. He's a, a great songwriter. If we're just talking about songwriting, he's got a great voice for just talking about vocals. Um, he has a very unique guitar style. He's a fingerstyle guitar player, and he totally just sounds like himself and uh, and no one else really. And he's a great harmonica player. There's different types of rack harmonica players. There's uh, what I like to call the Bob Dylan rack harmonica player, and that's probably 96. 98% of us that play any rack harmonica, I'm in this category, and it's that we're not really very good harmonica players, in a lot of cases, terrible harmonica players, um, and it's just, you know, it, it goes along with the song, and that's all well and good, that's great, I, I, I love that sort of thing, 
You also have uh, really great harmonica players who play a little guitar to accompany themselves. And Ray is really, truly fantastic at both. He's just a great guitar player and a great harmonica player. And he's able to separate the two and play complex things on both instruments at the same time. Um, so I, I think he's kind of a, a very important um, musical figure in, in how, how unique he is and in, in what he's accomplished as a rack harmonica singer-songwriter. Now reading excerpts from his bio. Often called a song and groove man, Bonneville has lived the life of an itinerant artist. From his native Quebec, he moved to Boston at age 12, where he learned English and picked up piano and guitar. Later, he served in Vietnam and earned a pilot's license in Colorado before living in Alaska, Seattle, and Paris. Six years in New Orleans infused his musical sensibilities with the region's culture and rhythms, and then a close call while piloting a seaplane proved pivotal. After two decades working as a studio musician, playing rowdy rooms with blues bands and living hard, Bonneville's lifetime hard-won experience coalesced into an urge to write his own music. Ray recorded his first album, On the Main, in 1992. He's since released nine albums, earned wide critical and popular acclaim, and won an enthusiastic following in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. His awards include a prestigious Juno, the Canadian equivalent of a Grammy, for his 1999 album, Gust of Wind. In 2012, Ray won the solo duo category in the International Blues Challenge. His post-Katrina ode, I Am the Big Easy, earned the International Folk Alliance's 2009 Song of the Year Award. It also placed number one on folk radio's list of most played songs in 2008 and was recently covered by Jennifer Warrens for the BMG label. Label, excuse me. Other notable artists who have recorded his songs include Ronnie Hotkins and Slate Cleaves. Ray has shared the bill with blues heavyweights Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Dr. John, J.J. Kale, and Robert Cray. He's also guested on albums by Mary Gaucher, Gurf Morlex, Ray Wiley Hubbard, and other prominent musicians. He has performed at renowned venues around the world, including South by Southwest, Folk Alliance, and Montreal International Jazz Festival, and plays over 100 shows a year across the U.S., Canada, and Europe. When not on the road, he resides in Austin, Texas. Here's my conversation with Ray Bonneville. Quick thanks to our sponsors, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any audio or restoration needs, visit pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. For any sponsorship inquiries, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com or andysiddo, S-Y-D-O-W, music at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com slash andysiddo. For as little as $3 a month, I offer exclusive and early content from this podcast and my music. If you'd like to support in a non-monetary way, just give this podcast a five-star rating and review. I'd appreciate it very much. Hey, Ray, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Andy, it's, very, it's a pleasure, man. And you're down in Memphis currently. Yeah, I'm in Memphis. Um, I'm just poking around here. I'm, I'm looking to get out of Austin, and uh, Memphis is kind of speaking to me, so I'm poking around here looking for looking around, you know. As, as possible, a possible living place? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. Very good. Um, and what have you been up to the last couple of years as, um, you know, we've had our shutdown and stuff. How have you managed to, to keep going? Well, you know, I, 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 um, I'm, I'm sorry to say that it kind of shut me down. Uh, yeah. it, it kind of it put me in a, a weird headspace, and I, I didn't get a lot done that I know of. Because yeah. I say that because a lot of times uh, my artistic mind is working behind the scenes, and I'm not privy to it right? until it comes out, until something comes out. So, but as far as I can tell, uh, it kind of depressed me, and it, uh, it just kind of knocked me down, and uh, I kind of... You know, I, I kept saying to myself, man, you got to get some something done. This is uh, this is an opportunity to, uh, you know, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you've gotten out recently and been playing some some shows, though, correct? Yeah, I just uh, did five shows in the Midwest. I did uh, Kansas City and a couple shows in Nebraska, Des Moines, Omaha and Fayetteville, Arkansas. And uh you know, I was being careful the whole time because I'm this thing worries me, you know, like I, I don't want it to I don't want it to bite me. So I have been careful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, j- jumping back a little bit, um, you were born in uh, in Canada, correct? Jumping back a little bit. You well, were yeah, you that. know, uh, yeah, a few a few years. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I was born in I was born in um, in Hull which is uh, actually in Ottawa. My, my parents lived in Hull, which is across the river on the Quebec side. Then we moved pretty quickly to Quebec City. And then we lived around there for a few different places until uh, we moved to the Boston area uh, when I was about, I don't know, 12. So when you moved to Boston at 12, did you speak English fluently at that point? No, I didn't speak English at all. So what is that like going into a middle a middle school environment where I, I'm sure yeah. it's, they're not kind. Um, yeah. Not it, was a, it was, it was, let's, let's, let's mess with the French kid. Let's yeah. punch him in the shoulder when he goes by and let's, uh, and like that. And, uh, but you know, um, I had a summer and I had some neighbors that helped me and I was able to, you know, I was able to, the, the only thing that I, I would say that was a detriment was, would be that, uh, they, you know, due to my language barrier, they put me in with some, unmotivated kids and so they stuck me there and left me there and that's how i'm a, I'm a guitar player <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so was i mean is that when you started playing as well yeah i started playing uh when i was about 14 uh my buddies had guitars and they would they would sing songs in the shower at the school so that because there was a natural reverb there you know yeah and uh so the water wasn't on no 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 uh and uh you know i just it spoke to me right away i just i just really i just really liked it right away and i i just you know i took two lessons and uh and then i was in a band wow and what was the first band called (laughs) the vips the vips did you guys play around boston yeah, we play, well, we were too young to play clubs, so we played frat houses. Okay. Yeah, we had an agent, and he sent us to, you know, up to Burlington or Connecticut or wherever. You know, we had an old two-tone green Cadillac ambulance yeah. for our gear, with our gear in it and stuff, and we'd go around and, you know, 
play, and uh, it was a lot of fun, you know. Well, what kind of music was it? Well, we were doing, um, you know, it was right, it was right, uh, it was kind of half American, uh, Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, Ricky Nelson, and half Dave Clark Five, uh, the British stuff, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we had got little glasses with the little, you know, John Lennon glasses, and we got... <laughs> Sure. And we had uh, we had um, outfits, you know. We had a uniform and everything, little skinny black ties and puff, puffy shirts and shut and stuff. <laughs> did you guys get any? Did you get a big opener uh, slot or anything like that in that group? Yeah, yeah. We played before the Isley Brothers. Uh, wow. And uh, you know, me and my buddies, we used to skip school and go into the the Boston area called the combat zone, which was Washington street. And we'd go stand outside the strip clubs and listen to the bands because man, they had the groove. Yeah. So yeah. it was speaking to me back then, you know, and were you always a, a finger picker? I mean, is that how you started off? No, not at all. I was a, I was a, I played with a pick and, uh, I didn't start finger picking until, uh, I would say like around 1976, 77, I was in a band with a guy named Kelly McNishan and he was, he was kind of mining the John Hurt thing. Yeah. The Mississippi John Hurt finger picking thing. Yeah. And I noticed he was playing, you know, with one, just his thumb and his index. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I, I secretly would say to myself, cause I was just a harmonica player in the band. And uh, I would secret, secretly say to myself, Oh, shit. oh no worries um i uh would say to myself if i can learn how to do that i, w I won't need this guy okay yeah so, so you did so i did <laughs> so i did and and it and it developed you know over the course of thousands of gigs and I, i'm not even kidding like thousands of gigs the thing sort of morphed into what it is today which is a kind of a i don't know like a i i i pick but i i do a lot of brushing now i brush against the strings for like i'm trying i'm always trying to create the sound of a little band mm. you know so the brushing is like cymbals yeah and, and finger picking is like lead and bass together so yeah um yeah i'm always i'm always doing that that's interesting you, you say that about trying trying to capture the whole band and stuff. And listening to your playing, I don't even know who I would compare it to um, because it, it is, it's different. You know, you've got your own style. Yeah. Well, that, that happened on its own. I mean, I, uh, that, I, I, I'm of the school, like even with the harmonica, I'll, I'll learn from other people. I'll copy them to learn the language. Yeah. And then I will completely discard what I learned and just go with what, the music asks me to do like I'm, I'm, I'm very respectful of the listener and I want to treat them with a, a lot of respect. And so I'm always asking the song, you know, where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? Yeah. How do you want to be dressed? So, yeah. so the, the style that's, that's happening today is, is completely, uh, it happened, uh, on its own. Was there a specific moment or song or show where you really started to feel like you 
were becoming completely your own player? Uh, I don't recall any such, uh, any such thing. Uh, I just realized, you know, you know, I didn't start making records until I was like in my early forties. Yeah. Um, I was involved with airplanes for 10 years. And I, so I had like a, I had a wife, which was my music. And I had a mistress, which was the airplanes. And I had two, two things going on and, and they really weren't related. Like one didn't inform the other. And so, uh, I wound up flying a bush plane in Canada in, uh, 1990. <clears throat> and, uh, I got into some real deep, uh, very, very, um, dangerous trouble. And, uh, I, I was scared for about 50 minutes straight, maybe an hour, uh, scared for my life. And, um, I decided right then that I would finish out the season and, 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 and just be a player. And so I took an apartment in Montreal and started writing songs. And with, with this, um, with this plane incident. And I, and I guess first, before we get into that, you, you did flight school in, in Boulder. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, I had the GI bill from being in the Marine Corps Yeah, and, uh, they, they paid 90% of my training for, for, uh, a private pilot, private license, commercial license, instrument license, multi-engine, all, all of those tickets. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I did that in Boulder. Yeah. Well, and I guess even even uh, to to cover the military a little bit too. Did you um, did you do that straight out of high school? Uh, I got expelled from high school, and uh, my old man t- cornered me one day and told me that I was a bad influence on the rest of the kids because there was nine of us. And uh, he told me he didn't think I had the nads to to join the military. And so the next day, I joined, joined the Marine Corps. Of course, he knew I'd do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I didn't even know how long I was going to be in for. I, I didn't. I was in for three years. I, I didn't even. I didn't even. I didn't even know. I just, you know, I just. Uh, I just joined like a, as a reflex to my father, because I wanted to get away from get away from him. You know. And what? Uh, I mean, where were you stationed, and what kinds of? Uh, I mean, were you well, a pilot I went, there? I went. I went to boot camp in Paris Island, South Carolina. Then I was at Camp Lejeune. Uh, uh, North Carolina, and then I was in uh, Vietnam for 13 months, and then I was back to Camp Lejeune, and then I got out. Okay. And, and did you enjoy your time? No. No, you were ready to, you were ready to move <laughs> on to something else? Yeah, like when they discharged me, I remember I was walking from the discharge office back to the barracks, and I was, you know, taking off my tie and throwing it away and taking off my uniform. By the time I got to the Barracks. I was practically naked. Yeah, ready to be done. I, I, I'm joking, but <laughs> yeah, uh, but it was you know, uh, yeah. I wanted to get out of there. You know, when I first joined, I was my head was full of movies and you know, war movies and glory and stuff, and it wasn't like that at all. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and so then when you got out, what? made you want to become a pilot from there? Well, I, I didn't, uh, for a long time. Uh, when I got out, I, w- I was, uh, I didn't start flying until I was 30. So that's like, I got out when I was like 20. Mm. So I was playing music. And, uh, one day I realized I, I was going to, the GI bill was going to run out. Ah. And I said, well, what am I going to do? I can't waste this money. So, and I was scared of flying. Yeah. 
I was scared of it. I, I didn't like it. But I, I don't know. I went to the airport and said I want a lesson. That was it. Wow. And, and, and then you learned how to fly. And were you, uh, I mean, were you taking passengers around or what kind of jobs uh, were you doing? Oh, um, well, in the bush, I was flying, you know, passengers. I was flying hunters, fishermen, uh, geologists, um, injured people. Um, you, you, there's, no, there's no limit to what I flew in the, in the bush. Like, you know, uh, 45 gallon drums of oil, propane, uh, canoes, everything. If it didn't fit in the plane, you tied it to the floats and and you took off and the airplane would fly like crooked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm picturing this. I would be scared for my life every well, time I, mean, I took off. You know, uh, you know, when you have a lot of, when you have a fair amount of training, you know, it's, it's, you're calm. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and how long were you a pilot before you had this incident? Oh, 10 years. You did for 10 years. And so during that time, were you still doing, um, I know you said that was kind of your, you were also doing music, but was, yeah. did, was it a back seat for you or were you still very seriously pursuing it? With the music? Yeah. Oh, it was never a backseat. No, it was always important, but, uh, and I, I always lived for it, but I was jonesing on the planes too, you know? Yeah. Like I told those uh, advertising, advertising banners, you know, the yeah. ones that have the letters behind the plane. Yeah. And those are, that's an, that's amazing fun because the banner is laying on the ground, right? And it's, it's laying on the ground and it's got a long rope. That's a loop and it goes to two sticks with a, a flagpole on each one and you take off this way and you lower a hook and then you dive at these poles like this and you pick up the banner like that. And, okay. and you don't ever fly much higher than 300 feet, you know? Uh, and I, I just love doing that. Yeah, that's interesting for, for events and stuff, right? Well, yeah, whatever the guy would say, I want you to pick up this banner and I want you to go over and, fly it around such and such a place. And, you know, I, you know, and one time, uh, one time I was flying at what we, what we call the swamp, which was over by Plum Island, uh, just south of New Hampshire. And I was picking up multiple banners. Like I would pick up a banner and I would fly the beach and then I would come back and drop the banner and they'd have another one ready for me. Mm. So I go to pick it up and I miss it. Cause it's kind of cloudy and kind of misty. I miss it. So the next time I come around, I, I make sure I'm not going to miss it. So I dive, I dive at the sticks and I'm a little low and I pick it up with my left main landing gear, which means I can't release it. Oh. So, so I have to go to fly over to this little grass strip and, and land with it attached, which you never, never, never do. <clears throat> and it got caught on a fence and it yanked the plane sideways and tore the banner off and I'm going down this grass runway sideways. Like I'm looking out the window and, and the runways like out here. And I didn't, you know, this was all happened so fast. You know, yeah. I kicked a bunch of right rudder and I, I somehow bang, bang, bang. And I, I landed the plane. Okay. <laughs> so if, if I, if I were a pilot, that would have been my incident where I said, okay, I'm done. But, oh. but you kept going. 
Yeah, that wasn't a big deal to me for some reason. I mean, I'm, yeah. maybe I'm, maybe I'm not too bright. I don't know. Well, uh, I don't I don't know anything about piloting. I'm just I'm just yeah. uh, putting. But anyway, my, that, yeah. that's that's the flying, <laughs> that's the flying, and I really loved it. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of jonesing again for it now, but I don't, I don't know if I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I I guess. Uh, one last question in regards to that this this thing that happened in 1990 where where was that what was the situation that was in a, a place called Clova Quebec which was a little town of about I don't know 150 people on the railway line that ran east and west and from there we flew people up into the north and so we had I don't know how many lakes and cabins and we just, you know, would drop off fishermen, pick them up, resupply them. Uh, so that was kind of like probably a couple hundred miles north of Montreal, up, up in the up in the up in the up in the bush. Mm. Mm. And so, so then after that happened, you said you're just going to do music. Yeah, I, I I took an apartment and started writing songs, and I made you know I made my first record, then my second, and. and now I got nine, and I'm working on my tenth. Was that the big difference after uh, after the the uh, the plane incident? You started. You were playing music before that, but you started actually writing songs. Yeah, yeah, and you know, in retrospect, part of that is part of that is um, my relationship with the English language. Um, even though I could speak English uh, fluently and well, I, I didn't really have the deep nuance of of it to get into any kind of poetry or any kind of depth. So I think that has something to do with how, what took me so long, but it all happened. It's, I can only tell you in retrospect. So I, I don't really know, you know, did you ever write in French or consider doing that? Yeah. I've got a couple things in French. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that it's very, um, comfortable for me to write in French, um, especially in, in, in the, in a root style of music. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I got, I got a new one that, um, I'm going to record, but that's all in French. And I have an, I have a couple wow. of other ones that are, that are mixed English and French. Wow. Is that tricky going back and forth between the two in a single song? No, it's, it's almost necessary because the French language has a lot of little sharp, little sharp edges to it. And so when I'd run into one of those, I'd go to, to find an English word that rhymed with the French word. Yeah. So it would like smooth it out, you know? Yeah. So cheating a little bit. You've got extra language knowledge. Yeah, I'm a cheater. <laughs> um, so in we're not going in chronological order, obviously, um, yeah. jumping around a little bit. Um, when, before you were doing the songwriting thing, um, so the age between 20 and 30, when you were, um, it won before you were a pilot too, and you're just playing, um, what, I, I mean, were, were you starting to get into harmonica at that point as well? Yeah, I, 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 I got into the harmonica very, very soon after I, I got out of the Marine Corps. Um, I was driving a taxi cab in Boston and, uh, you know, I heard guys like, you know, Holland Wolf and, um, you know, all the great harmonica players. And, uh, 
I said, I got to do that. And so when nobody, there was nobody in my cab, I'd be uh, learning how to do it. Did you learn harmonica? Well, I mean, obviously you probably learned harmonica by itself before you started trying to put it with the guitar, right? Yeah. Not like a, some of these guys today. They go, oh, I need something for my show. They go down and buy a harmonica and they play it that night. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you, you, I was, I was chatting with, uh, I was, as we were talking before this, our mutual friend Nick Clark. Yeah. We were, we were talking the other day as I was kind of preparing some things to to talk about in the interview, and one of the things that came up was that there's a couple kinds of rack harp players, and the overwhelming majority of rack harp players is is that kind. Uh, mm -hmm. Need something for the show tonight. That's me, right? I'm like, all right, I'm gonna. This one needs a harmonica, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, in and out in the key, but then yeah. there's there's the players like you and, and and there's very few that do it really well, um, like you do that are playing an intricate line on the harmonica while they're playing an intricate line on the guitar, um, mm -hmm. and and that's I, I think that's a neat style. I mean, who do you look at? Who did you look at as influences that were doing both really well? Um, you know, the guys that attracted me early on were. Uh, Jimmy Reed and uh, Slim Harpo. Um, and then when I was in my early 20s, uh, John Hammond was going around playing and he had a, a, a pretty great style. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it wasn't until I saw Sam Myers playing. He was singing through a 58 and then he just would grab a harmonica out of his pocket and play it into the vocal mic with great tone. Yeah. So I said to myself, okay, I don't need any bullet mics. I don't need any, because I had all these mics I was trying out really. And I, what I've come to discover is that the harmonica is nothing more than a mouthpiece, like for a sax, you know, the mouthpiece they put on. Yeah. That's all a harmonica is. There's nothing about a harmonica that re resonates or that vibrates. So the instrument is your body. Right. And so once I knew that, um, I could, I, you know, I don't know what my tone was like before in the rack, but it improved after that. Interesting. And, and you see so many people using the bullet or, or various, various things, but, um, yeah. yeah. And in, in during that time, too, were you doing a lot of session work on both both harmonica and yeah. guitar? Yeah, not not guitar. I'm, I'm, I'm really not a good uh, session guy on the guitar because I I only play the cowboy chords, you know, the chords that come uh, on page one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my right hand is 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 more complex. Yeah. Uh, and so between my right hand and my left hand, my left hand finds little things to do within the chord like little hammer-ons and little little things that I can do to, to sort of, I don't know, to wiggle my way through it. Uh, um, I forget where, where I was going there. Uh, we just said you, were, you weren't doing a lot of session work on guitars. Oh, no, you yeah. were very unique. The harmonica, I, the, the harmonica, I could just go in and play by ear and never even, all I needed was what key it's in. It was very, very natural to me. Yeah. And so I did a lot of sessions in the Denver area, uh, Denver, Boulder. Um, yeah. 
uh, I was, yeah, I, I did all right that way. Any sessions that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm in Denver, by the way. I don't know if you know that I'm a Colorado guy. Oh yeah. No, I, I figured since you know, Nick, you might be. Yes. Yep. Yep. We're right down the road. Um, yeah. so in, in Colorado, I mean, what were some of the studios that you were playing in back then? And were there any specific sessions you can remember that? Oh man, I was, I was pretty stoned the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I, I, you know, there were, there were some stu studios around Boulder and some in Denver and, and some in the foothills too. Uh, and I just would, uh, they would call me and I'd go and I'd say, what key is it in? And I would play on it. Yeah. And there was a lot happening in the Colorado scene at that time. Oh, that too. was, that was a jumping scene. It was like, <clears throat> it was like Austin, you know, at the same time, like it was a lot of music going on in Boulder. Yeah. In the seventies. Yeah. yeah. These days, I wouldn't say that now. Yeah, it's a little different now, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But um, I, I, I've, when I've chatted with, with people who have, um, who are in Colorado in the 70s, I hear a lot of stories about even Evergreen and going up and, um, I don't know, recording up in, up in that area and all the people running around. It sounds like it was quite a sanctuary. Yeah. Evergreen, uh, there's a bar there called the Little Bear. Yeah. That we used to play. Uh, I've got pictures of it, and uh, but I, I don't recall recording in Evergreen. Uh, but in Denver, you know, Denver was happening. Was was there bras on the stage uh, in the seventies at the Little Bear? Was there what? Was there bras on the stage in the seventies? Bras, as in like like dancers? N uh, no bras, like la ladies' bras. Oh, <laughs> or is that before that? Because now the no, stage is covered. I don't remember that. The stage now is covered in bras. You're kidding. No. <laughs> That's weird, man. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. women women get drunk, take off their bras and hang them up there? I guess so. I, I think somebody, a band offered free merch or something if, uh, and we're expecting two or three bras and I think they got 50 and then it became a, a thing. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, I don't remember that. Yeah. Okay. You might have been. You might have been stoned. You were stoned through all that, anyway. Well, I was drinking a lot, and I was smoking, smoking a lot of pot. You know. Uh, and do you do you do any of that stuff anymore? I don't drink at all, but I I I, I do edibles. Yeah. 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 Um. And and so you start putting out your own music, writing songs. The first record is on the main, correct? Yeah. Comes out ninety three. Yeah. Um. How did you start making that jump into having a solo career where you're not just playing in a band or a session player? I mean, you got to book your own gigs. I mean, how did you first start getting into that scene? Well, the solo thing uh, started at the end of Boulder. I went to I, I wanted to have a solo act. So I went to Alaska and in Alaska, I could get a lot of gigs where I, I, I wasn't very good yet. You know, I, I was. Um, you know, I played a, I, I don't know how many gigs I played in Alaska, but it was a lot. And, and then I moved to Seattle from there and kept doing it. And then I went to Paris, France and kept doing it. And then I went, I moved to New Orleans and kept doing it. And it wasn't, it was in New Orleans that I really, really, uh, I, I really, um, understood that you know music is not a race it's not there's no hurry about it mm 
it's it's a it it just is you know the spaces between the notes are as important as the notes mm. and i learned that in new orleans there's so many great drummers there and horn players and singers and uh just wonderful wonderful music music there and I, that that sort of seeped itself into my into my being because i lived there for six or seven years and and i i didn't realize this until i left that how much it had affected my music because everything i hear from that i've recorded before that sounds like it's in a hurry mm. and uh uh so anyway um after new orleans uh I, in new orleans i i had gigs and i also was a flight instructor at the lakefront airport and and that's how i got in touch with uh, somebody told me about a a banner tow job up in Boston. So I went back up to Boston and did the was flying up there. And but I was playing a place in Cambridge called the Plow and Stars um, every weekend. So yeah. so I would be flying during the weekend playing on the weekend, always playing solo. Yeah. And it, were you starting to I mean, were you just were you playing small small clubs at this point were you starting to attract attention from booking agents or anything no no because you know when you don't write when you don't write your own music you don't you don't attract anybody yeah um you're you know even though i was covering other people's material i was doing it my own way like not never like the record yeah. uh, i just wanted to sort of find my own thing for it and you know you don't you don't attract anybody when you're we're doing covers so I didn't even, I wasn't even after anything. I was just after playing, you know? Did you have a, a, a different motive when you started writing and putting out your own records? Yeah. Yeah, because this is going to be my career now. Yeah. And, and how long of were you putting out records and writing songs before you really started to, to pick up some steam? Oh, maybe that, that'll happen maybe next week, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You've picked up some steam over the years, I would say. Well, I don't know. I'm not really aware of my of my own. Uh, I'm I'm not really. I mean, I, you know, I I do I try to do a good job. I care a lot about it. I'm in love with it, and I try to do it as well as I can. And I try to make friends and, uh, and I just I'm still doing that. I mean, I'm. I don't have a plan. I'm, I'm not really a very good planner that way, business-wise. Yeah. Uh, I just don't care about it, you know, that much. Right, right. I care about, you know, the note and the, how fat it sounds. And I care about how the words come out and how they, how they tell a story. And, and if I can be successful at triggering the listener's imagination in the story. Not, I, you know, people say, what kind of music is it? I go... Man, it's, I don't know, I'm not going to use a word like blues or folk. Yeah. Because that's so narrow, right? It's a, it's a, it's a hypnotic groove upon which I, I let a story ride. And I try to, to trigger the imagination of the listener. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's, um, I mean, that's been, you've been doing that throughout your whole career. Yeah. That's right. What have you learned between, uh, you know, that first that first release in 93 and um, at King Electric from from 2018? 
um, either musically or about your career, or about your writing? I mean, is there something? Is there? A, I'm sure there's plenty of things, but is there a takeaway for you? Um, you, you mean after after that recording? Yeah. Um. Well, you know, to me, that's just another recording. Uh, it's like you get a bunch of songs together and they, you want them to be part of a family. So you put them on a record and that record, I went into the studio with my friends, Richie Lawrence on keyboards and Andre Boren from New Orleans. And we just, uh, we, we rehearsed at my house, maybe one afternoon. We just went over the songs roughly because I didn't want anybody to get too comfortable knowing what they were going to do. And we, we went in and we did it live off the floor. Mm. with Justin Douglas, uh, who is uh, uh, my engineer and, and co-producer, a, a brilliant guy. And uh, we just, uh, that's that's what came out of the, that session. I mean, I, I had no preconceived notion of what it would sound like. Yeah. yeah. And is, is that how you, is that how you treat every record? Uh, just a no. group of songs that you want to... No, uh, for example... Bad Man's Blood, 2011. Yeah. Um, that one, I took a chance and and went in and recorded the songs by myself. Just me, my guitar, my amplified feet. And then I, I listened to the songs and I asked people to play to me, including, including drummers. I didn't want to play to a drummer. I wanted the drummer to play to me. So it was kind of a, a bit of a leap for me to trust myself enough to say, you know, my groove is my groove and I'm not going to play to a drummer. I'm going to, I'm going to lay him down. And, and in the middle of making that record, I was like, I, I was going to throw it away. I didn't think it was any good, but it turned out to be a lot of people's favorite record. Do you have a favorite record? of yours uh they're all for different reasons you know like i don't have a i, I really like the last one though yeah at king electric yeah i love that yeah i like that one a lot um but i i like uh the one i did in calgary's the solo one rough luck I, I like them all i mean i like them all i don't listen to them yeah sure Sure, you don't listen to them while you're jogging or cooking or anything like that. Oh, no, that's the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> Can you talk about uh, your writing process a little bit? Um, you know, you're, you're not always a first-person writer. You tell stories. I mean, you've, you've, you've done all kinds of different topics, obviously. But when you sit down, are you uh, somebody that starts off with a riff or an idea? Um, well, they, they come at me and really different ways. Uh, sometimes it'll just be a couple of words that'll jump off a page at me and I'll go, Oh, and I got to write that down. Uh, and then I'll see if a story wants to be around that. I, I really don't have a precise, I don't sit down every day and write, but I'm always looking for always, always, always looking for an idea. Hmm. Uh, it's like I talk about this in my songwriting workshops. It's like if you're looking for a car to buy, you see every for sale sign on every car. 
And if you're not looking for a car, you don't see any of them. Right. So I'm always looking for song ideas. So they jump off, they jump out of conversations, they jump out of, they jump off newspapers or whatever I'm reading, or they jump out of a movie, or they'll jump in, or it'll be something I say, and I, I hear myself say it, and I go, oh, shit, I gotta write that down. And, you know, and then, and then they start to, you know, I, it's not, I'm not in control of my songs. They, they control me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now do you find that you're always looking to buy a car or do you go through phases where always looking to buy a car? Mm. Always. Even right this second. Okay. I, I hope I, I'm, th- I've got a lot of pressure now. I'm hoping maybe I can say something that'll <laughs> say, you know what? That could be a song. Um, <laughs> you know how many, a lot, of, a lot of people say that to me, they go, Oh, you know, that could be a song. And I go, yeah, well, maybe not. Yeah, I, I, yeah, very much so, very much so. I know how that goes. Um, in fact, most most times people say that to me. I think I probably not. That's probably not a song. Well, you know, it could be part of a song. It could be the catalyst for a song. Yeah. Are you a songwriter? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should have done my homework. Well, I, I mean, I, I invited you on my show, so that's that's how it works. I do the homework. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one thing I will tell you, though, about songwriting is that um, I want the listener to think, to, to believe and truthfully that it's their song. Mm. Uh, it's not my song. It's their song. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And, you know, one example I like to use is Hank Williams. He wrote about such universal uh such universal human emotion that everybody that heard it said, that's about me. Mm. Uh, what I do is I don't put in the details. I let the listener subconsciously put in details. Yeah. The colors, the, the everything, the weather, the, the smells, the everything. Yeah. And so that makes it their song because it's their details. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you give them the, the canvas and the basic outline and kind of let them. Yeah. Mm. Do, do you ever put in, uh, you know, intentionally put in a very minute detail yeah. um, in, in hopes that they might take that and, and grasp it into something else? Well, I don't know if I ever think that deeply about that. Uh, yeah. There are some details, I guess, in my songs, but I really I really like to leave it, you know, like the girl in Papa Chula Lay, you know, there's some detail there. She looks at her phone, she puts on her shoes, uh, but uh, there's no detail about the guy that's doing her wrong other than she misses even the lies he told her. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, I'm always just trying to, you know, I don't really understand it, uh, Andy, to tell you the truth. I, I don't pretend to understand it. I kind of like that. I like it that way. Yeah. You know, yeah. what it is that makes somebody drawn to toward a piece of music or, or, a piece of poetry or not, uh, 
that's that, what I'm explaining to you now is my is my attempt. I'm attempting to. That's what I'm attempting to do. Well, and when you said the line, he misses even the lies they told her. I mean, something like that. Everybody can relate to in a different way, right? Everybody, when you say that line, thinks about a past relationship that didn't go well, you know, or or something, right? Yeah, it's like, like I I'm I'm hooked on you so bad that even your lies are I I miss them like I want them yeah. because you're not here and you used to lie to me and I miss that because it's it's you and I miss you of course you know in three weeks when I meet somebody new I'm gonna see the truth that you were you know you were a dick yeah yeah right right now that's a line for a song oh, okay. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Do you always write um, by yourself, or do you sometimes get together and co-write for albums? Uh, that you know, that's a very slippery fish for me. To me, I mean, I I do co-write here and there, I have and successfully, but I have more unsuccessfully. Like I, I did that Nashville thing where you go there and you meet a stranger, and you know, two hours later you have a song. Yeah. Um, none of those songs would I ever 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 sing or put on my records. Um, well, they're just, they're just clever and they're not, they don't have any depth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that was, maybe that's the point of those songs too. I, um, yeah, you got a yeah. point there, but I, I, I feel the same way. And I, when I've done some of those sessions where I don't, I don't feel like it's ever something I would sing. Cause it just feels like it's, I don't know what it's lacking. And I, not that it's not a great song sometimes, but, um, I don't know. It yeah, doesn't quite yeah. do it for me. Yeah. A great song is uh, well. First of all, it's very subjective, right? I mean, somebody might think a song that I hate is a great song, and that's their opinion. And for them, it's a great song. Yeah. But uh, a great song to me is a simple song that that pulls you in and and tells a story and like you have maybe 14 or 16 lines like i'll tell you i just got through writing this song called uh on the blind side mm -hmm. and it took me two years to write it because it's about my baggage yeah. my childhood and and what my, my my demons throughout my life and you know when i'm writing on the computer I'm always discarding, I'm pushing down. So the I call that the bone pile. And the bone pile for this song is over 50 pages of wow. of of discarded stuff just to get to the meat of the song, just to get to these 16 lines that for me tell the story accurately. Um well, not that's the wrong word. Accurate is not doesn't belong in music, but in my opinion, it's more like the feeling is there and the information is there and the and the groove is there. Yeah. Uh, so it took me two years to write it, man, but it was worth it. Yeah, you got it just right, just the way you want it. Well, no, I didn't get it just right. I got it <laughs> as right as it's going to be. Yeah, sure, sure. 
uh, you called it the bone pile. Is that right? And so the bone pile uh, for listeners, if the, uh, that's all the the fifth the over fifty pages of lines that he tried out that didn't make it to the song. Right. Um, I I call it the boneyard cafe. That's funny. The bone pile. I like that. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I go to the bone pile when I'm looking for like a an alternator for yeah. a song. Yeah. You no, know, I, I I'll go there and I'll I'll, I'll pick something out, but it's not going to be in this in this song. I was that was actually just going to be my next question was how often do you go back to the bone pile? I mean, do you find things uh, when you're just looking to start a song often from a bone pile of another song? Yeah, you know, not really, but I'm going to after this conversation. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> because it's it's about context, right? I mean. Uh, you know that th- those words might not belong in this song, but they they easily could trigger another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what what's next? I know you're working on on new recordings, some bilingual yeah, recordings, I'm, even. I'm writing right now. I'm I'm in Memphis, and I played a gig the other night, and my friend Will Sexton, who is a an amazing musician. He played the bass with me. And normally I don't use bass players because my thumb is playing the bass. Yeah. And uh, and Will played the bass and he plays so magically that he never once stepped on my thumb, but managed to make the thing really percolate. Mm. So I'm going to make the next record with him. With a bass player? Yeah, with a bass player. It's just going to be me, my feet, uh, uh, the bass player and my guitar, and that will be the the rhythm section. That will be the band, and then I will I will confer with the songs and ask them, do you want to go out tonight and wear a suit, or do you want to hang around the house in a t-shirt? When you confer with the songs, is that is that a very casual thing for you, or do you I mean do you sit down with your coffee and put on the headphones and really listen no. to them? No, I just. I'm just, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just listen to them and, and, and I ask, you know, I, I confer with them, but really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sussing them out. I'm, I'm going, you know, there's a story. want to be naked and just have a, a vocal with really close mic'd vocal with breath and little hairs. Uh, or do I want it, the vocal to be further back and, among a group of friends or like, I, I kind of see it that way, you know? Yeah. I, it's either, I'm not the boss, man. The song is the boss. Mm. And it's a fickle boss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. The song is the boss and it's a fickle boss. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Ray, thanks so much for uh, chatting with me. And if you would stay on the line with me for just a second, but um, in, in, in terms of our audience, I, I just want to say thanks for coming on and being a part oh, of yeah, the show. Oh well, yeah, I, I really, en- I really enjoy talking to you, man. Uh, it's it's not often that I really, really, really like talking to uh, a uh, a person such as yourself because you you have the feel. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, man. All right, that was a lot of fun. That was a treat for me. Thanks, Ray, for chatting with me. I sure appreciate it. That's all for this week. I don't remember offhand who's who's up next week, but it's going to be good, I promise. 
And uh, so come back and, and check it out then. Thanks for listening and have a great week.